please rise as you are able for the reading of today's New Testament lesson from the book of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding, and the unclean spirits begged him, Send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The swine herds ran off, and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, friends, it's so good to be with you all today, uh, both in person and on stream. Thanks to Casey and to Shelby for leading us in worship and to uh, all of our musicians and to each of you that have joined us today. It is a great privilege to be with you. A, a special word of thanks to add to what Shelby's already said to Tracy Levine, uh, who is our executive director for Healing Housing, that you had the privilege of seeing that video today. She's doing a marvelous job in her ministry there. She is a member of this church as well. And many of you know uh, Olivia Waters-Smith, who uh, was kind of the founder of Healing Housing in her own experience, which led her uh, to help us with this strategic partner in ministry. So, Tracy, thank you so much for what you're doing. And I know that some of our women there are watching today. Uh, we love you and we're so grateful for our partnership and work with you in the kingdom. 
If you were with us last week, you'd know that we began a series after the prayer series. We spent 10 weeks on the prayer life of Jesus, and we're moving in this year-long sequence that we're calling Walking with Jesus. We're moving now from the prayer life of Jesus to the power of Jesus with another scene from Mark's gospel that reveals something of the authority of Jesus. Now, what you understand if you study the synoptic gospels, namely Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is you will see that Mark, more than any other account, recalls and recounts the miraculous deeds that Jesus performed during his earthly ministry. And last week, we noted the response of the flock in Capernaum, which was where the headquarters of the gospel movement was, in Capernaum at Simon Peter's home. And this was the response early on to the ministry of Jesus. It's in Mark 1, verse 22. The people were amazed by his teaching because he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, last week we mentioned that the word authority in the Greek tongue is exousia, which literally means the power to act, exousia. The scribes and Pharisees, we know, the religious professionals had positional authority. They had the title, they had the reverend, but it was Jesus who had the power to act, personal power. And so Mark's account, more than any other, focuses not simply on what Jesus said, but more what Jesus did. I'm reminded of one of my favorite leadership quotes. I don't even remember who said it, but I agree with it. Leadership is not telling others what to do. It's inspiring others to do what needs to be done. And that's exactly what Jesus did. If you look at Mark 1 through 4, the first four chapters, Jesus demonstrates, he exhibits the power to teach, to preach, to heal, to forgive, to cleanse. And then he empowers his disciples to do the same. But in chapter 5, in this scene, which I find rather fitting for Halloween, he exorcises unclean spirits. Jesus is an exorcist. He rebukes the demonic. And it all begins on the east side of the Lake of Galilee. Now, what you need to know is that the east side of Galilee was essentially what we might call the other side of the tracks. In other words, Jews didn't much go to the east side. It was Gentile territory. It was considered unclean geographically. And so Jews were seldom seen taking a boat to the other side. The area was known as the Decapolis. The word deca, the Greek is 10. The Decapolis is the 10 cities on the east side. And so Jesus is on his way. It has become evident, by the way, that Jesus not only has authority with his own people, but in the Decapolis, Jesus demonstrates authority with pagan people, non-Jews, Gentiles. The story begins immediately after the storm text, and we're going to talk about that next weekend. The text where Jesus displays power over all of nature when he and friends are on the lake in the midst of a storm, 
and he calms the winds and waves. Immediately after that, the wind has pushed them east and they dock the boat on the eastern shore near what Mark calls Geresa. It may have been Gadara. It is modern-day Kersi. We were there last February when we went to Israel. As soon as Jesus gets out of the boat, he's confronted by this man who frankly has some serious issues. In fact, we might say by today's standards, he's possessed. He has an unclean spirit. And when you see him, everything about him is terrifying. In fact, according to the Talmud, which is the written authoritative compendium of the oral tradition, there were four characteristics of madness. Number one, walking abroad at night. Number two, camping out in a graveyard. Number three, tearing one's clothing. Number four, abusing one's body, one's flesh. And this guy, according to the story, has all four ingredients. In the encounter, however, what you notice is he has some sense of clarity in his mind because he calls Jesus by name. Listen to the text again, verse 7. Jesus, what do you want from me? He calls him by name. Jesus, son of the most high God, what do you want from me? And when I read that, I wonder how on earth did he know Jesus' name? Well, if you know the synoptics, you know that the demons always seem to know Jesus. They always perceive his authority. Now, ironically, the, the scribes and Pharisees never really get who Jesus is, but the evil spirits, they always know. Verse 6 says, when, when he saw Jesus from a distance, listen, he ran and bowed down before him. He, he prostrated himself. That's liturgical language. That, that's worship talk. In other words, the unclean spirits in this man are more spiritually aware than the religious professionals. In other words, the evil spirits are actually more discerning, more intuitive, spiritually speaking, than the scribes and Pharisees. And if that doesn't convict you, you need a little more preaching. In verse 9, Jesus then asks this man his name. Now, in Hebrew culture, to know the name is to have control over the entity. This is, by the way, why the traditional Jews, the Orthodox Jews, never called Yahweh by name because it's too holy. And to call God by name is to indicate that I have some control over God. They would not call out the name. But when Jesus asks the name, what he's wanting is control over the entity, the uncleanness. And it's fascinating to me the response of this man. Listen to what he says. My name is Legion, for we are many. Now, I'm a little spooked at this point. This is what makes it a Halloween story. He's using a personal possessive pronoun along with a plural pronoun, my and we. He is self-identifying as I and we. What's going on? He's having an identity crisis. The unclean spirits within him are now speaking in his behalf. In other words, he's lost clarity. 
He's lost singularity of focus. He has lost his spiritual center. And look at his name. What kind of name is Legion? It's not a name at all. That's, that's a number. A legion is a detachment or a contingent of Roman soldiers numbering about 6,000. Now, what you may not know is this may actually be a veiled reference to the devastation of people and property by the Roman occupation. Let me explain. Josephus, the Jewish historian in the first century, actually said, wrote, that the 10th legion of the Roman militia had been stationed on the east side of Galilee since the year six of the common era. And get this, the crest, the insignia of the 10th legion on their shields, guess what it was? A boar, a wild pig. Are you tracking the story? The imperial troops thought of themselves as a source of civilization, progress, and peace. But the locals had a different perspective. They regarded this power as oppressive. And what Mark is actually saying in this text is rather radical. He's saying that the authority of this rabbi who has just docked his boat is greater than the politics of the region. He's saying that this Nazarene preacher, his power, his authority is greater than the occupation of troops which is threatening the identity of the people. All of that in that phrase, my name is Legion for we are many. In other words, this sick man he is expressing the conflict and polarization. He is living out the polarization of his own context, and he's lost himself. Carl Jung, you remember the great Swiss psychologist who, who introduced a, a type of psychology to us, analytical psychology. He was the protege of Sigmund Freud, once said these words, the world will ask you who you are, and if you don't know, the world will tell you. It is a perilous thing when a person becomes a number instead of a name. It is a, a lethal moment psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually when a person becomes a consumer instead of a child of God. And this man, a sea of conflicting voices, all of which were competing to define his identity. We studied the book by Richard Foster, Celebration of Discipline, several years ago. I've read this book several times. Many of you have read it. Richard Foster, who wrote it, is a Quaker theologian and he says in that book words that are appropriate for this day. Listen, he says, the spiritual forces of evil love to enmesh us in muchness and manyness. In other words, the nature of demonic power is multiplicity, disorder, confusion, and chaos. 
When Jesus in his signature sermon, Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are the pure in spirit, you know what he meant? Blessed are those who have a singular focus in me. Now at this point in the story, watch what happens. Legion begs Jesus not to send the demons out of the vicinity. And what you may notice in these 20 verses, there's a lot of begging in this text. In fact, five times in 20 verses, you see the word begging. He begs Jesus not to send the demons out of the country. Now nearby, and here's where it gets interesting, there's a herd of pigs on the bank and the demons themselves begin to beg Jesus, send us into the pigs, let us inhabit them. And I don't know why, but for some reason, Jesus allows it. And with one fell swoop, the bacon business goes to pot. 2,000 pigs over the cliff, drown in the lake. And, and I have to tell you just personally, that is enough to make a native Tennessean have a heart attack because all that country ham just going to waste. Deviled ham, whatever it is, going to waste. Meanwhile, the swine herders the folks who are watching the pigs, they beat it to the city to break the news. And you know what happened? The Chamber of Commerce comes out, Better Business Bureau shows up. There's a bunch of people with posters, save the pigs crowd, they're out there. And then verse 15 says, listen, they came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there who is clothed and in his right mind the very man who had the legion, and they were afraid. What? Why, why do you think they were afraid? I, I've wondered that. I, I mean, I would think the text would say, and they began to rejoice, and they lifted Jesus on their shoulders and, and put him in a parade. They celebrated and praised, but that's not what it says. They were afraid. I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes we have a way of becoming a little too secure in our own pathology. Sometimes we become a little too content and comfortable with our own disorder and mayhem to the point that any change, even for the good, feels threatening. What bothers me about this crowd is that they could live content with a demoniac howling and bruising himself in the cemetery, but they could not endure a rabbi who threatened their economy. In fact, the most troubling thing to me about this story is the people in the Decapolis were more concerned about pigs than they were about people. For some of them, they said the cure is worse than the condition. And then in verse 17, watch this, there's more begging, but this time it's the townspeople. This is unbelievable. And the townspeople began to beg Jesus to leave. It's unthinkable. They asked Jesus to bamoose, to leave the neighborhood, to go away. And Jesus, who will never violate human will, will not impose himself. He won't stay where he is unwelcome 
he leaves. Reminds me a little bit of Revelation 3.20. My mind goes to Revelation 3.20. Jesus speaking, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with them and they with me. I have a picture of Holman Hunt's Light of the World. Do you remember this British painter who in the 19th century did this rendering of, of the text that I just read, Revelation 3.20, Jesus with the light is knocking on the door. And Holman Hunt, who was a painter who was known for graphic detail, if you notice, there is no latch on the outside of the door. And that's by design. It's on the inside. Jesus will not force entry. Somebody has to let him in. Finally, Jesus gets back into the boat. And when he does, guess what? More begging. But this time it's the demoniac who's now back to himself who begs Jesus, Lord, would you let me go with you? I've never had a place here. Let me go with you. Can I be, can I be one of your disciples? Could I be an apostle? The 13th? Could I be a missionary? Let me cross to the west with you. And it sounds like a reasonable request, but it's one of the few times that Jesus ever said no. He refused this man. He gives him a mission, yes, but it's a little different from what we expect. Listen to the commission, verse 19. I want you to go home to your friends and family, and I want you to tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. Now, I don't know about you, but I've discovered sometimes the most difficult and vital mission field in the world is not about going to Africa or Lebanon. It's not about crossing the sea. It's about crossing the street. The most difficult mission field sometimes in our own nation is our own home. And the greatest task is in your own backyard. It's on your front porch looking in. Now the apostles, the 12, they were called to leave home, right? To give up their nets, their boats, their business, and in some cases their family. And if God is calling you to do that, you need to do it. But Jesus doesn't always call us to leave home. Sometimes he calls us to go home. Go home to your people. Go home to your family. Go home to your school. Go home to your business. Go, go home to your firm. And let other people know what God has done for you. That means you don't have to go elsewhere to be a missionary. But you do have to go somewhere. Go home and be a witness. And you know he did. He did exactly as Jesus commanded. And the story ends exactly like last week. Everybody who heard this man's testimony was amazed. And it was evident that this man not only knew about Jesus, he knew Jesus. Last word. A friend of mine sent me a story this week that amazed me. 
It's the story of Joanna Flanders Thomas. I have a picture of Miss Thomas. In fact, Philip Yancey writes about her in his book, Finding God in Unexpected Places. And this is what he says about Mrs. Thomas. I met her in Cape Town, South Africa, this dynamic lady of mixed race. As a student, she had agitated against the apartheid movement and government. And and after that nationwide victory, she turned her attention to Polesmore Prison. Polesmore Prison is the most violent prison in South Africa. In fact, it's the very prison where Nelson Mandela spent eight years in confinement. Joanna started visiting, visiting prisoners every day at Polesmore, bringing them a simple gospel message about forgiveness and mercy and reconciliation. And slowly, this woman began to earn their trust. She even somehow enabled them to talk about their abusive childhoods and showed them a better way of resolving conflict. The year before her visits began, this prison recorded 279 acts of violence against inmates and guards, and the next year, there were only two. Joanna's remarkable results attracted the attention of BBC producers. And they sent a camera crew from London to film a documentary, you can see it yourself, of her work. Dr. Yancey said, when I met Joanna and her husband, I said, hey, I've seen the BBC documentaries, but I still don't get it because these guys are monsters. They're rapists and murderers. And from what I could see, you were simply holding Bible studies, playing trust games and having prayer meetings. Miss Thomas, he said, what really happened to transform Polesmore Prison? And Joanna looked at Philip Yancey and said, almost without thinking, well, Philip, God was already present in the prison I just had to make him visible. That's it. That's what Jesus was doing on the east side. That's what we're doing on the south side. But you have to know that Jesus is already here. And he has a mission with your name on it. And he wants you to make him visible. When you do, I will promise you this, something powerful will happen. And the result, it's amazing. It's amazing. May it be so in you and in me and in us to the glory of God, in Jesus' name.